0: Father, it is amazing words that we could say it is well with our soul. It should not be well with our soul in and in of ourselves, but because of grace, because of mercy, because of your kindness, because of your intention to redeem for yourself a people who will delight in your glory and worship you with hearts full of gratitude and thankfulness and praise for all of eternity, delighting in you. We can say, as you're redeemed, gathered here, that it is well with our soul, and your return is not to us a day of fear, but a day of rejoicing. And so we continually ask you to help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus so that everything else is dim compared to the brightness of your glory and the wonder of your person, so that we can live for you lives that are meaningful that are purposeful and useful to you in this world. And we ask these things in the dear and the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, well, if you will, open up your Bibles once again to the book of 1 John, that little letter of 1 John in the back of your Bibles. It bears repeating that we are taking some time to consider... Uh, very broadly, we could uh, take any of these topics are worthy of much more attention than we're giving them, and particularly the, the book of 1 John itself is worthy of much more attention. But we are very broadly looking at the issue of what it means to share life in Christ. What, it, what, it, what are the things that we can see that give us confidence that we are, in fact, participants in the saving work of Jesus Christ and in the life that he won for us and demonstrated in his resurrection. And so that's what we are considering, and there's many places we could go, but one of the best places is the book of 1 John. It was written for that very purpose, that we might know that we have eternal life, and this life is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're doing. This is, of course, the utmost uh, important question that any of us could ask of ourselves and for some hearing this it might be, I would hope anyway, if they're outside of Christ, it might be a time to say that the things I'm hearing that mark a Christian are not the things that I see in my life. That uh, I don't know the things that are spoken of there by John. It would be the hope that that would bother you, it, that it would, it would make you feel uncomfortable, that it would make you ask God to reveal the truth to you and to your own heart. That would be the hope. And for others who, in fact, have experienced that regenerating and life-giving work of the Spirit, then the hope is that it is an encouragement to once again be reminded that God has saved even me. God has saved even me, that God has, with all of my, my times of unbelief, with all of my weakness, with all of my stumbling along the way, that God's life is in me, and God's life is my own possession because of grace, and that there might be encouragement in that. Now, just by way of review of the things that we've looked at so far, I want to uh, mention the points that we've covered and yet mention each one with a question that really captures the idea behind it. And the first thing we did in looking at the letter of 1 John is consider God's nature, what is shared life in Christ, first in light of who God is and God's nature. And the first part we looked at then of this nature and the nature of eternal life is this life and relationship, relationship with God primarily through Christ. And here is the question of knowing if you have shared in that life is this, is knowing God as revealed in Christ, my deepest longing to be close to him and to desire fellowship with him. Can you say that of yourself? Secondly, we considered it in light of uh, God's moral nature. And so the question is this, this relationship in light of God, who God is, that he is light and, and there is no darkness in him. And here's the question you could ask yourself. Does the knowledge of God in all that he is and reveals himself to be bring me a sincere sense of worship and a desire to follow him and conform to the testimony of reality? Is that my deepest longing? Do I look at who God is? Am I presented with God who he is? And my heart says yes. It rejoices in that knowledge of him. It delights in him. Even in the hard things as well as in the beautiful things. Even when it speaks of God as judge and eternal punishment. As well as when it speaks of God as the savior on the cross. That whatever is revealed about God in his word. That my heart naturally says yes. That is the God I love, that is the God I worship. Can you say that? And then, in identifying this holy nature of God, the one with whom we have a relationship, this life then should produce within us certain attitudes and characteristics and mindsets and perspectives. And first is in relation to sin. And so here's a question, if we claim to have fellowship with God, and this is, it's this. Do you feel that indwelling sin is the greatest source of frustration, discouragement, and disappointment in your life because it hinders you in giving to Christ your whole heart, mind, and soul in obedience and worship? Can you say that my greatest frustration, the greatest burden I bear, is that sin is still in me? And my greatest desire is to be free of sin. Why? Not so that I can just be happy all the day, but so that I can give to Christ and give to God in Christ what I truly desire, which is all of myself, all of me, and worship him. Secondly, in relation to believers, if we share in this God who is light, then it's going to be reflected in our attitude towards other believers. And so we could ask ourselves this question. Is the company and fellowship of believers to us bring the greatest sense of interconnection and commitment? Does it well in us a desire to serve them and to share with them our faith in Christ? Can you say at the deepest level of your desire with David in Psalm sixteen three? as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight? Or can we say I feel really no deep difference whether I'm with unbelievers or whether I'm with Christians? Uh, That should not be true of someone who shares in Christ's life. And thirdly, as a reflection of this fellowship with God who is holy, who is light, our relationship to the world, and this we'll look at today, but let me just give you this question. Do your deepest and truest loves and sense of connection, are they attached to this world or the world to come where the glory of God in Christ fills all? What do you feel most attached to, most comfortable with, most most at home with? This world or the testimony of the world to come? And that's where John takes us this morning, or what we'll consider in the in, uh, in his epistle and it's namely this that if we are believers we have a different relationship to with God we have a different relationship to sin becomes now our greatest burden we have a different relationship to believers and we have a different relationship to the world In other words, it's impossible to be born again and to share the life of Christ and to have the same relationship with the world and the culture and all of that that we live in as anyone else. There's something different about Christians. We live in the world differently than those who are outside of Christ. So then we'll consider our relationship to the world. And I'll state this. Sharing in the life of God in Christ brings the genuine Christian into a different relationship with the world. A different relationship and this difference is due to the fact that regeneration changes the person at the deepest level of who they are. It changes the deepest level of our loves and our affections, our delights, our longings. It changes the person. It brings the, the, the inner man and, the, and that, that deepest part of our soul as those made in the image of God and it changes all of those affections and desires and puts them towards the values and the principles and the glories of the kingdom of God in Christ. Jesus, or, or Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Everything becomes new. Now, Jesus highlights this new relationship of his disciples with the world, uh, I think most clearly and succinctly in his prayer to the Father in John 17. Uh, And so he says this. He says, I do not ask, this is Jesus praying to the Father, I do not ask that you take them, that is his disciples, and by extension all those who will believe in him through their word, I do not ask you to take them out of the world or from the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. They are not from the world, just as I am not from the world. Now, in saying that, Jesus identifies two distinct relationships to the world that his disciples have. One is that disciples, those who belong to him, those who are truly his, are in the world. In other words, they are present in creation. They are a part of the human reality on this planet at this time and in this age and through all the ages of humanity. But they are not of the world. So there's a distinction by saying that they are present in this world, but their identity, their person, their, uh, who they are is not a part of the world. And so we would get there, the idea that we are strangers and sojourners. We are aliens in a foreign land. We are citizens of a kingdom in a country that we are not yet in, in its fullness. And secondly, he would identify this. That the moral character of this present age is at enmity then with the creator and those who belong to him. So we are in the world, but we're not of the world, a part of the world system, a part of the nature of this world that stands in opposition to God. And in fact, we are in this age and the age itself is at enmity with the creator and therefore it puts us at enmity with this age and with this world. In terms of spiritual allegiance. And it is for this reason that Jesus notes as well in his prayer to the Father. That the world has, speaking of his disciples, hated them. Hated them. And is under the power of the evil one. These are in verses 14 and 15. And the evil one is identified in other places in John's gospel as the ruler of this world. In other words, the the primary spiritual influence on the thinking and the loves and the mindset and the perspectives and so forth of humanity. It is to say that he is behind spiritual lies and deception that controls the heart of unregenerate men. And he is from the beginning a hater and a murderer He is, in the entirety of his being, set to oppose God and his purposes and those who bear his image. That is his singular goal. So if we were to take an idea of the world, in John's gospel anyway, it would be this, that the world consists of all of creation made by God through and for Christ that now presently stands in rebellion to him. That now presently stands in opposition to him. So in verse 10 of chapter 1. It says he came into the, uh, the world. And the world was made through him. But and you remember. But the world did not receive him. Did not know him. Did not receive him. But rather opposed him. Now these same ideas then are carried over into the letter of 1 John. To the epistle of 1 John. And this idea of the world then is very important to him. As a matter of fact the term translated world. You're familiar with it. Cosmos is used 17 times in this short epistle. Let's just look at it briefly. Uh, Just follow with me. We won't read every reference, but the the different ideas that are represented here. The first usage is in chapter 2, verse 2. And it says that he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. The world here is identified then as the sphere of God's saving activity in Christ because outside of Christ it is under his wrath. That's why he was the propitiation. That a world that is under his wrath, he has sent his son to remove that wrath for all that are in him. In chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, which is where we'll spend some time later. He speaks of the world as that that place that consists of all of the desires and goals of men that stand in opposition to God. That stand in opposition to the truth. In chapter 3, verse 1 We see that the world is that place that is estranged from God. At the end, he says, For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. It is the place of spiritual ignorance and blindness and death that does not recognize or perceive the truth of God. In verse 13, The world is the place that has enmity and hostility and hatred toward Christians. Verse 13, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised. In verse 17, the world is spoken of more generally as merely the place that has those created things of God by which Christians can serve one another and express love for one another. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother needs and closes his heart, how does the love of God abide in him? So it is just that place where we can use the created things for service and for good. The world in chapter 4 is the place, however, where there also is the presence and the uh, active work of the spirit of Antichrist to oppose everything that is of the truth. Verse 4, chapter 1. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. In verse 3, he says this. You jump down in the middle. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard that it is coming, and now is already in the world. In verse 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Who is in the world? The spirit of Antichrist. Verse 5, they are from the world, those who listen to the spirit of Antichrist, those who speak as the the words or the the ideas of the spirit of Antichrist, they are in the world and the world listens to them. In chapter 5, verses 4 through 5, the world is that place that is hostile to Christian believers, but that believers overcome by the sovereign power of God. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And in verse 19 of chapter 5, the world then is stated directly to be under the power of the evil one. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So what is the world How do we, what is a biblical worldview of the creation that we live in? In some, it's this. The world is the sphere inhabited by both fallen and redeemed humanity. It's the place created as the revelation of God's glory, now under the dominant influence of Satan in all of its basic ideologies and structures of society and religion. And it stands opposed to the true knowledge of God and every implication of that knowledge of him as creator, redeemer, and king and ruler. It is, in a sense, all the conglomerate, all of the combined hostility of humanity under darkness and under the influence of Satan that stands in opposition to God. That is the world. And in terms of its fallenness, it includes everything from the crass and obvious to the subtle undercurrent of culture that almost imperceptibly carries our affections away from Christ, from truth, from eternity to vanity, triviality, and compromise with sin. The things that dull our sense of the glory of God as king and his kingdom to come. So the the world and all of that opposition then isn't necessarily always the crass and obvious things. It's the general tenure, the current, the undercurrent that carries us along in a way that is designed by Satan to get our attention off of who God is and of truth and to move it to other things. So then the question is, as we consider what is it then to possess the life of Christ, is this, what is the regenerate person's relationship then to the world? What is the regenerate person's relationship to the world? Let me answer that in just several statements. And again, these are brief. I'm just going to mention them. The first is this. The regenerate person's relationship to the world is the same as Christ's relationship to the world. It's the same as Christ's relationship to the world. Uh, let me read to you just one passage in chapter 4. He says this, We have come to know, verse 16, and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him, verse 17. By this is love, by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. What in the world does he mean by that? As He is, so also are we in this world. Well, it highlights this basic reality that believers who share in the life of Christ, who participate in His life, who are the embodiment of the Spirit of God on earth and the life of Christ on earth, reflect the same relationship to God as Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, as the Son reflected with the Father while He was here on the earth. That's the idea. One put it this way, I think, in a a helpful summary. Between God and Jesus exists perfect love, obedience, and fellowship. It should be characteristic for every believer to reflect the abiding fellowship and love that exists between the Son and the Father. Insofar as this is achieved, a complete likeness to Christ in the future is foreshadowed. It is to say this. That as those who have been redeemed from their sin, as those who have been given a share in the life of God through Christ, live in this world as those who belong to Christ. That means we live out of fellowship with God. We live in obedience to God. We live delighting in those things that are of God. We live as witnesses to the saving work of God in a dark world. That's what it means then to be in the world and not of the world. We are in the world, but we are in the world with our ultimate connection and fellowship with God, with Christ. The statement comes in the context of God's love for believers. And it is to say that as this kind of fellowship with God and obedience to God and this kind of reality of his life in us is manifest, then we have confidence and know that the ruler of the world, when he comes to judge the world, is not to be for us a time of fear, but is in a time of anticipation. And that's why he immediately says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear involves punishment. The one who fears is not perfected in love. This to say then we live as the redeemed. We live, and here it is, as a new humanity within our world that has fallen. Let me give you just one passage. I'm just going to read this. In verse 9 of chapter 15, this this is really wonderful. But Verse 9. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. That is to say that as we live in, with the reality or in the reality of life in Christ... Our greatest desire is to know and maintain the love of God that he has for his own. We do this by living and walking in fellowship with him as his word abides in us and we are obedient to that word and in our obedience to that word, we also know the joy of that life in this world. So that's the first relationship that the regenerate person has to the world. As those who share in the divine life whose greatest mark is that they have a fellowship and they have a hope and they have a reality that transcends this world and is wrapped up and bound in the life that is in Christ that's revealed in Scripture. And that is real. Now, this produces then a love that stands in direct contrast to the world. So here's the second way then that a regenerate person lives in the world. They live in the world... With a love that is in conflict with the world and the loves of the world. Look at John 2, chapter, verses 15 through 17. If you're familiar with this, let's just briefly consider it. He says, after identifying the spiritual reality of those who are fathers and children and young men, who have overcome the evil one and so forth, have known the Father... He says in verse 15, and this is the first imperative of the epistle, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lust. but the one who does the will of God abides forever." And here then he establishes that there are two contrary loves. There is a love for this world and there is a love for the Father as revealed in the Son. And these two are at enmity with each other. Each cancels the other out. They are at hostility with each other. They are in conflict with each other. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And he uses the... The same term and the strong term, you're familiar with this, agapao, for both of those. And it has this sense here of that it's to like or love something on the basis of a high regard for its value or importance, is one definition that's a quote. One put it this way, the moral and spiritual impulses that determine how people live. So he's saying we can't live with a deep sense of the value and the importance of this world and maintain a love for the Father to find in him everything that is the highest ideal and desire and goal of our hearts. You can't have it both ways. Either we value the world and the things of the world, or we value God and all that he is for his people in Christ and all that he's promised. And here he defines the world, and we'll look at this broadly. The world, and he says, though he who loves the world, nor the things in the world. This refers to the world as a system of ideas and desires in conflict with the love of God. And the world is presenting the possibility of pleasure and meaning and satisfaction apart from God. The whole sphere of this world lived without reference to God, without concern about the reality of God and who he is, and so forth. It is to find value, meaning, and satisfaction in what is earthly rather than what is heavenly. And he defines here, then, the love of the world in this way. It consists of this. He says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And you might note that this love of the world follows the same shape and patterns of Satan's seduction in the garden. Again, let's just very briefly consider it. He says it's the lust, it's the, it's the love of the world. The world here consists of these markers, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. These both refer to the strong inner desire and impulse to prefer and be motivated by what is earthly, by what is of this world. So the flesh here can can have... It could be taken in two ways. It could could be taken as the flesh and how Paul often uses that, that sinful desires, those sinful longings, those sinful impulses of the heart towards those things that are sin and disobedience to God. Or it could refer to natural desires that are attached to good things but in a sinful way. Either way you take that, it, it amounts to the same thing. The lust of the flesh is the idea that the heart is the impulse of the unregenerate person to satisfy and seek satisfaction in what the world provides. It can be oftentimes good things in themselves turned to idolatrous lust, idols of food, idols of sex, idols of wealth, idols of power, idols of leisure, idols of relationships, all of the inward cravings of the heart that manifest a disregard for God's glory that are encouraged and fostered in the world. The eyes here has the sense of desire for what the eyes can see physically, but not merely as instruments of sight so that we can see the physical world, but as the physical world is viewed with greedy desires, with greedy desires. In this sense, it is an extension of Eve's seduction into sin when after listening to the twisting of Satan and turning her heart and her mind away from God, the same tree that before she gave no attention to, now she looked at as an object of desire, an object of fulfillment for her. And it says in Genesis 3, 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it and ate. Her perspective was changed. That tree no longer now was a means of easy obedience in its avoidance out of love and delight in God. It became the very center of her reality, the very center, of the, center object of her affections and of her attention. Satan had caused her to drift away. And so the lust of the eyes is to speak of those inward desires of the heart that beholds the offerings of the world as the satisfaction of the soul and does so greedily and all of that to the exclusion of God in Christ. We can think of the entire media age is built on that, isn't it? Think of advertisements and films Everything is designed to say that what you need, what you need for your satisfaction to be complete, to be whole, to be happy, to be delighted is what this product offers, what this film offers, what this offers, what the world can offer. And that's the idea here. And then he says the boastful pride of life. And this most simply refers to those things in life that are attained for the, uh, for the purpose of bringing self-glory and honor. Again, wealth, prestige, and so forth. Those things that are designed to promote self, not service to God and others. And this can refer even to good works and religious works. You can think of the Pharisees who did all of their deeds to what? Be noticed by men. So whether we put that into a religious context of an unregenerate heart, or whether we put it into a secular context of an unregenerate heart, it is to say the motivating desire of the boastful pride of life is to promote and exalt self and not Christ and the purposes of God in Christ. It is to bear the rebuke even in a religious context of Jesus, who says you cannot love God, you don't have the love of God in yourself, because you don't seek his glory, but you seek glory from one another. And so these are the things promoted by the world. And those who do not have the love of the Father in them know the internal reality of a character whose inward orientation is towards worldliness. And so the question is, then for our hearts, do we seek satisfaction or our deepest longings and wantings for the things that the world can provide or for things that God alone provides in Christ? That's the distinction. Do we feel more at home in the world than the one, to the world to come? Do we feel that it's easier to give time, thought, and energy and inward gaze to the world rather than to God revealed in Christ? What's easiest for us is the question. Those who share in Christ's life, who love God, have been made to see God as he is in himself. And as the song says, the things of the world grow strangely dim. This isn't a matter of moralism or behaviorism. This isn't a matter of just doing harder to live a moral life. This is to say that the one who does not love the world is because they have within them a greater love. They have within them a stronger love. They have within them a greater taste of pleasures that are more than what the world can give. They have seen the loveliness of God in Christ. They have tasted of his kindness. They have tasted of the fullness of grace, the forgiveness of sin, his tenderness and nearness, reconciliation with the Father. And it's deep and powerful enough that, we, that it moves the heart away from the things of the world into the love of the Father. The regenerate heart may be entangled at times with the empty pleasures of the world, but it will find in them ultimately only misery. Only discontent, only dissatisfaction, only an awareness of having dishonored God, of living contrary to who we actually are, of not having offered to God all that we really want to offer to him. So yes, the one who is a believer gets caught in the world at times, but they don't embrace the world with contentment and a clear conscience. That's the idea. And he says the world is passing away and it's lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. And it is simply to say that the one who shares in eternal life knows that all of the world and together with all of its potential pleasures are not worth losing Christ. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? And the regenerate heart understands that. You see... How silly this can be. I mean, We wouldn't do it this way. But the world often lives. Uh, it's reminded of the Egyptian tombs. And what do they do when, they buy, when these pharaohs and these kings died? Hey, it's great to the person who finds the tomb. But it's kind of sad for the person whose tomb it is. They were hoping that these riches and this wealth. Would be something that would be aid them in their life. To come in the eternal life. And many live that way. But a believer knows better. Thirdly then. Those who share in Christ's life expose the sin of the world and ensure its hatred and bring its hatred. Those who share in the life of Christ live in fellowship with God. They live with loves that are, in con- that are contrary to the loves of the world. And they share in the life of Christ, expose the sin of the world. They actually expose the world by a righteous life. Chapter 3, verse 12. We are not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brethren. For what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. In other words, Cain hated being exposed by the righteous deeds of Abel. And so he hated him and he killed him. And he says then, we read this earlier, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised because you are An expose of its sin and its wickedness. We read a few weeks ago, you're familiar with this. Those who are in the darkness hide. Those who are in the light run to the light. But the darkness hates the light because the light exposes it as evil. And its deeds as evil. Why is it that such evil regimes... Uh, those evil moral crusades of our time are not asking for tolerance or equal rights, but total domination. Why do children suffer the most in this? Because for that ideology to be unchallenged, it has to be comprehensive. It has to go to the deepest possible level. It can allow no dissent. And so it is. And so when there is any dissent, it hates It has a vicious and a violent hatred towards the light. And of course, we've seen that. We've seen that even just this week in the shootings. But even more than the shootings has really been the response publicly to it and culturally. Imagine this many years ago. But there was an immediate, even by highest levels of authority, intention to defend the shooter and not those who were the victims and the innocent. There was a mockery of prayer, a mockery of praying to God. It was no less than the taunting of God that was with Elijah. When he says, you know, where is your God? He's not doing these things. And yet they turned that around and were mocking the true God of heaven and earth. There is a hatred. And if ever we would think behind the glittery and the glow and the smiles and the false kindness that the media and Hollywood and other things present to us, it is that which reveals its truest colors. Owen said sin always aims at the utmost, which means that sin always has inherent in it the ultimate objective to dethrone God and to kill him. If it could. That's what's really the germ of every sin. And then we see it, but it's what's always behind sin and the rejection of God. And so Christians are becoming more and more hated in our country. Clearly, Christians in other parts of the world and throughout history have already experienced that. We're entering into that. But that's what he means. But should we, not, we should not be surprised if the world hates you. And yet, to have the life of Christ, though hated by the world, there is also... For believers, a genuine desire and love for those in the world that they would be saved from the wrath to come. It is not then a response of hatred in return. It is a response of compassion. Boldness in pointing out error, but at the same time of hoping them not that they would destroy and go to hell, but rather that they would be saved and go to heaven. That they would become worshipers rather than haters. Fourthly, and we have to go quickly, those who share in the life of Christ then overcome the world by faith, which is a gift of God. So in chapter 5, verse 4, whatever is born of God, whatever shares the life of God in Christ, overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, who believes the testimony of God in his word. So believers overcome the world. They're in the world, but they're not of the world. They are in the world as lovers of God who fellowship with Him and obey Him. They are in the world as those who live and want and desire and hope contrary to all of the things that the world values and esteems. They are in the world as those who by their lives and the light expose the sinful deeds and sinful thinking of the world and therefore are hated by the world. But they are ultimately the ones who overcome the world and never fail finally succumb to its temptations and its evils and to its resistance to Christ that's the Christian's relationship to the world and so you say is that my relationship to the world and again it's impossible to love the world and to love the Father at the same time And so you, we think "Oh, what are the things that preoccupy our minds and our hearts again let me just end this point with a quote again from Ryle and Holiness for those of who aren't there. Uh, We'll cover this chapter today, but he says this He endeavors to set his affections, speaking of the godly person, he endeavors to set his affections entirely on things above and to hold the things of the earth with a very loose hand. He will not neglect the business of life that now is, but the first place in his mind and thoughts will be given to the life to come. He will aim to live like one whose treasure is in heaven and to pass through this world like a stranger and pilgrim traveling to his home, to commune with God in prayer, in the Bible, and in the assembly of his people, and these will be the holy man's chiefest enjoyment. And so is that ours. Lastly, and this, again, I'll have to go quickly, but I do want to wrap this up today. The second point, one is the Christian's, uh, the moral nature of God. The second is shared life, or the shared life and the moral nature of God. The second is shared life in Christ and the word, and the word. And again, I'm only going to mention this briefly, but let me mention three parts. What is the Christian's relationship then to the Word? When, when we come in to the experience of life, there's a new relationship with God, with sin, with believers, with the world, and all of those things that a believer enters into. He also enters into a new relationship with the Word and with Scripture. Again, let me just mention them briefly. First, what then is the believer's Relationship to the word it is to believe the testimony of God in Christ in short Anything we know about God in his glory in Christ We know because of the witness of Scripture and the regenerate heart believes every part of God's witness to his person to his work to his promises to his words In 1 John 5, he says this, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son, and the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And the testimony is this, that he has given eternal life, and this life is in the Son. It means, then, that when a believer comes to Scripture, they have within themselves the inter- internal witness of the Spirit who impresses upon them at the deepest level the truthfulness of Scripture. He impresses it on the heart, on the mind, and the conscience of a person that is called to faith in Christ. In the language of Jesus, sheep, the sheep hear his voice, the sheep follow him because they know his voice, and they do not know the voice of strangers. John puts it in interesting ways. He says in verse 20 of chapter 2, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you, in verse 21, because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. You have that internal witness within yourself. Verse 24, Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Verse 27. The anointing which you receive from him abides in you. You have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you abide in him. Now, he's not there talking about there's no need for teachers. What he's saying is he's confronting those who said they have a special relationship with God. And the word that they brought and the revelation they brought and the truth they brought was in contradiction to and contrary to what they had received through God's representatives and approved representatives, the apostles. And he says, you know the message that is true. You know that the testimony of Christ as the Son of God and His work is true. You know that when I speak to you that these words resonate within the deepest part of your being as truth, as authoritative, as right, as from God, as from the voice of Christ. That's the idea of it. So the regenerate heart hears and reads Scripture with spiritual understanding. This means this, basically. Basically. If you are regenerate, that you hear and read scripture with an inward sense of its authority, truthfulness, and origin from God. You read with a sense of its bearing on your inward thoughts, desires, and life in such that it produces a desire to believe, to obey, and to conform to the truth. That is the inward mechanism and reality of a believer. You read scripture and it's not a book you can easily set aside. That you read scripture and you hear in it the authority of God, the sufficiency of God. You hear the word of the risen Christ and, and and it challenges your thoughts. And you say not just that that is true, but that is true for me. This is not truth outside. This is truth that I am accountable to. This is truth that my soul responds to. This is truth that I want to conform to. This is truth that leads me to Christ. That's the inward experience, then, of a believer. It does not mean that there are not things mysterious and things that are hard to understand and things that challenge and confront us by the truth claims of the Bible. But the regenerate heart says with Peter, and remember, he says this in the context of Jesus saying some really hard things that made many disciples leave. But we say with Peter, Lord, we sang this last week, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And the believer just, who has the Spirit of God, who has been born again, knows that sentiment. Where else can we go? Scripture alone is where God has revealed himself. And that means then, just again quickly, that the believer then has the ability to discern truth from error. He says in chapter 4, beloved believe do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And he talks about false prophets who have gone out into the world. And he talks about the spirit of antichrist. We read some of that earlier. But he says this, let me get to verse 6. We are from God. The origin of our life is from God. We have the spirit of God. We have the life of God, the life of Christ in us. And he says, he who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And the simple test then is this. What makes more sense to you? What most resonates in your soul? The message of the world and human wisdom of the words of scripture. What do you most connect to? What do you gravitate to? What is this enrolled movement and influence towards? Is it to the words of scripture or to human wisdom? That's the idea. And there's a sense, in which is important in every age, obviously, but particularly now with the tremendous impact and influence of social media. The question then primarily for young people would be do you find that TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Google searches have a greater interest and influence upon your sense of reality, morality, identity and what is essentially good, true, beautiful and important and pleasing than scripture and the knowledge of God and Christ. Do you know how many people are led into all kinds of wickedness because they're not going to scripture they're doing a Google search? And that's leading them to all kinds of places. And all of a sudden their thoughts about God, what is true, their own identity and how they feel. Do you know that it's gone up? The last statistic I heard is a thousand percent. Those in the last few years who identify as transgender. Why? Because of this. Because the, the, the truthfulness of scripture is not the dominant impact and influence on our culture or their lives. But Chat box or GPT or whatever. And, and the rhythms that, that, test, that point us in directions to truth that are contrary to the word of God. And then lastly, on this I just mentioned, as we come to the table, what is the relationship of a believer to the word is one ultimately of obedience. Of obedience. At the end of the day, that's the, the way we tell. John notes this. In chapter two, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has been perfected. That is, believers walk in the light day by day, moment by moment. They walk in the light. They are obedient to scripture. First John two, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And so these are essentially the test of whether or not we share in the life of God in Christ. And these are tests, of course, that in some ways are obvious. Some of you, by the closeness that you have in relationship, can get indications of what the driving forces and desires are of that person's life. But some of us, it might be an outward life that doesn't match the inward life that only between you and God you know. But these are the test. And John puts everything in stark language, doesn't he? You're a child of God or you're a child of the devil. You belong to Christ or you belong to Satan. You walk in obedience or you walk in disobedience. You love the word and you know the word or else you don't listen to it and the world's more appealing. He, it's very clear. He speaks in definite language. And so we would do well to listen. Well, with that, let's come to the table and let's rejoice that we who do know God in Christ, who have come to know his saving grace, who do long for his righteousness ultimately to be the, the fullness of our experience. And the table reminds us that one day, one day that will be true. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your your word that is light to us. May we rejoice we who know you and the saving grace that we've received from your most gracious hand in Christ. And may any here who are deceived and who are not a part of your kingdom but are a part of the kingdom of this world, may you prick their conscience and give them no rest until they bow the knee to Christ and enter into your glory. We pray this in your name, amen.